through sorrow. And to learn how to do that better and even to walk with others who walk through sorrow better. But we do kind of live in a day and a time where we're quick to speak. Uh, We're quick to judge. We're quick to condemn with really little mercy and little grace. And I think an, an accelerator in our culture has been that of social media where it just accelerates that for us to be quick to go in and we go through our scroll through our, our social media feed, whatever that might be. Just We, we th- look through it and we get a judge and compare and quickly condemn through our words. Even to the point, it was funny, it was a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a month ago or so. I don't know if you're familiar with Nextdoor, but it's a, it's a social media page for neighborhoods where maybe you, you see something suspicious going on, so you post it, or, or maybe you have an activity going on, or... A lot of it's uh, for people who have lost their cats and dogs, it seems like, mostly. Um, but people will just also just put cute things and just fun things. But you'll be amazed what people will comment. And the other, other week, there was someone who just posted, posted this really cute picture. Maybe you saw it, of um, their puppy. I think they had, it was maybe like, um, a, uh, it was some big dog, but it was a puppy. So it was like this big puppy. I don't even remember. I'm not very good with dog breeds. But anyway, this big dog. And uh, a video where it was in the backyard, apparently, and there was a fence, maybe like a chain link type fence, and there was an elk that was um, over looking at the dog, and they were nose to nose, and the dog licked the elk. So it was this really cute video, but the person who posted it knew she needed to have a little disclaimer because she just knows how people are that they're going to criticize come in and say something ugly and she said just so you know the dog was safe we were nearby the elk was behind the fence it was all good and but it's funny that you can't even post a cute video without having a disclaimer because you know people are going to attack you she just knew people are going to attack me if i put this up here that's kind of the day we live in, where, where it's not a James 1.19. We learn that when we walk through James. It says, know this, my beloved brother. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But we're just the opposite. Um, so when people are walking through suffering and, and difficulty and loss, we don't always do that well. Um, we don't always act as ambassadors of grace and mercy in the gospel. And we need to learn to do that better. And as we walk through this passage today, I think there's an example in this. And in Ruth, one of the big themes is the steadfast love of the Lord. That We remember that Hebrew word hesed, which is that stubborn, faithful, loyal love. And we see that between the different people in this story, this true account of Ruth and Naomi. But we also see the provision of God. And we also see God's sovereignty, even over these horribly difficult times and suffering and trial that God is sovereign and even uses these as severe mercies that rescue and redeem. So we need to be those who walk alongside and walk well with people. So hopefully we'll learn that today. And speaking of speaking too quick, uh, let me pray before we get any farther along. Dear Father God, we need you. Um, We are a people, um, all of us can confess before you, that we are often quick to speak and, and bring judgment and not see the full picture and just say what we think from our safe position. And Lord, we confess that. Lord, help us even as we both walk through sorrow and walk through with others through sorrow. May we be slow to speak often. May we be those who sit and rest and wait upon you and help one another to wait upon you. 
Lord, make us better ambassadors of the gospel of grace, we pray in Jesus' name. So as we look at this passage, we're going to actually begin more in verse 15, because we went through 14 last week, but we need to catch up and make sure we know what's going on in the story. And verses 1 through 5 is this prologue where we go into this spiral down low point in the life of Naomi where we see that she is at the bottom. She's at a Job moment where everything has been removed from her, and she's in a living death at this point. Um, She's outside. Remember, she's outside of the community of God. They've left Judah. They left Israel. They've left the promised land, and they're in Moab um, because they left because there's famine in the land, and they leave for Moab to, to get food and find a new place to live. And she goes there with her husband and two sons, but her husband dies, and her two sons pass away, and, and they had married Moabite women, but uh, no kids. So at this point, there's really little hope. It's this impossible situation for Naomi of just little hope for there to be a continuation in her family. There's no grandchildren to carry on the name of her husband, to carry on that family line, to carry on even the heritage, the inheritance that they would receive of land in Israel. And there's no hope. So her, her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, there's no son that's going to come now from Naomi that they can marry. And she just makes it as clear as possible that even if she were to marry that night and conceive by a miracle and have twins and have boys and uh, they marry, that it's a long way off and it's just not going to happen. And she reminds me, there's just no hope. This is a hopeless situation. Don't choose me. Go back to your people. But then there's also a pivot within the story where there's hope that comes out as well because they do return. They begin to head back to Israel. So there's now not famine, but there's food in the land. There's harvest to come. So they head back to Judah. They've been a picture of repentance, of heading back toward Israel, the people of God. And her daughters-in-law initially begin to go with her, but again, she stops them and she says, hey, no, go back. Go back to your land. Go back to your people. There's no hope with me. This is my lot in life. It's not yours. Don't join me down this bitter path. Uh, The hand of the Lord is against me. Don't follow me. Don't join me. And at this point, she's just wrestling, too, just with these things. So then Ruth, what does Ruth do, though? Ruth binds herself binds herself to Naomi, and she shows this steadfast, loyal love to Naomi, and they begin to continue. But, verse 15, we see that the story's not quite over with this dialogue between Ruth and Naomi. And in this, uh, today, are the points, really, they're, they're more like application-type points as we walk through these points today, a little different than normal, but verse 15, be gracious in response to words of despair. Let's read these words of despair of Naomi. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Naomi just presses again on Ruth to return. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. Return to Moab. Again, there's no hope with me. Don't choose my path. The Lord is against me. Go back to your gods. And she doesn't really have the the best form of evangelism in this verse, does she? Go back to your people and your gods. Abandon the God of Yahweh. But she sends them. And 
at this point, she's wrestling through. She doesn't have a full understanding, really, of how God is working, even through suffering. How God's kindness can come in and even bring redemption and rescue through suffering. And she wrestles through these things. She's struggling in her faith, it looks like. But I believe at the same time, she hasn't lost all faith in the one true God. But she's struggling. She's wrestling this. She's become cynical, um, having trouble seeing what God is doing and what God can do and what God will do. So there's some cynicism there, and she's struggling. It's as if she is in a cloud because of her, her suffering, her despair, her loss. And there's a cloud that she walks through. And it makes it hard for her to see her faith and to see even her path forward as she walks through this cloud of suffering. And many of you understand that. And these words she has as she calls them, just to abandon even Yahweh, just go back to your gods. I would see these as words for the wind, I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, words for the, for the wind, but it's a phrase I heard years ago when I was, I was either reading something or listening to something by, by John Piper, and he, was, he talked about these words to the wind in the midst of suffering. I found it so helpful, even in my life, and even just as I look and walk with others in suffering and difficulty. And It didn't take long for me to go on Desiring God and find an article where he, he talks about that, and this is what he wrote, so bear with me just a little bit, but... It's rooted in Job, in the book of Job, Job 6.26, that says, Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? And this is Job, and he's had all these, these friends, per se, give him advice and, and bring accusation against him. And he says, the, the, the speech of a despairing man, it's wind. And this is what John Piper writes. He says, in grief and pain and despair, people often say, say things they otherwise would not say. They paint realities with darker strokes than they will paint it tomorrow when the sun comes up. They sing in minor keys and talk as if, as though this is the only music. They see clouds only and speak as if there, there were no sky. They say, where is God? Or there's no use of going on. Nothing can make any sense. Or there's no hope for me. Sounds like Ruth, right? There's no hope. If God were good, this couldn't have happened to me. And we say these things. And then he says, what shall we do with these words? Well, Job says that we do not need to reprove them. These are words of the wind. Or literally words for the wind. They will be quickly blown away. There will come a turn in circumstances. And the despairing person will waken from the dark night. And regret hasty words. And I think this is true um, when we walk through. Sometimes words are said and we need to be gracious and patient with one another. We need to be slow to initially quickly rebuke and, and condemn. We need to pray and wait and patiently speak words of truth in love and point them to the gospel that Christ is risen in the right timing, in the right way. And at the same time, though, we don't leave people in their sin, Right? Because uh, that's not helpful, that's not loving as well, but we wade through it patiently in prayer and wisdom with much grace and mercy. We're not like, maybe you've seen uh, the video either on YouTube or back in the day when it, I think maybe it was Saturday Night Live, I'm not sure, but uh, Bob Newhart has this this little skit where he's a, a psychiatrist and and the counselee comes in to him and has all these problems and things. And what does he say? Stop it. He just tells her, stop it. You know, stop doing that. Stop thinking that. Just stop it. And sometimes we're a little bit that way. And we're not to be the stop it people. Um, 
but walk in in grace. And be more like, today we sang a hymn by William Cooper, who uh, lived from 1730 to the 18th, to 1800s, and he was a friend of John Newton. Uh, he was one who, uh, the hymn was, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood. And he was one who struggled with depression and, and mental illness, and, and he wrestled with that. And he also wrote this great hymn, this great poem, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And this is how he could speak, I think. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. I think we should learn to to speak and be gracious in that way. And then we continue verse 16. We see Ruth dying to herself. Love of Jesus by dying to ourselves like Christ did for us. Verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God will be my God. So again, here we see that Ruth, she just pleads and urges. Naomi, stop. Don't urge me. Don't plead with me to leave. Stop. She's, she's saying stop it right now here. But stop pushing me to do that. She's counted the cost. She understands to be a Moabite widow in Judah is going to be hard, but she has already bound herself with Ruth. Her life and her future is, is I'm sorry, with Naomi, bound with her. And she does not want Naomi to send her back to Moab, to her land, to her people. And she's rejected the pragmatic, the most practical, most make, make sense option, the most logical choice to make. She's put that aside of returning to Moab where she could find a husband and be with her mom and her dad and be with her people and have a family there. But instead she chooses love. And also we're going to see that she chooses faith in the one true God. That's all wrapped up. And she, here she's cementing her commitment to Naomi. She's cementing She's uniting herself and her life and her future with Naomi. And she dies to self, uh, putting aside her own desires, her own ambitions, and what's easiest, that she can love and serve Naomi. Uh, But we don't live really in that culture anymore, in that time of day. In uh, the book, A Loving Life, and if you weren't here last week, and just a reminder, we have some books in back called A Loving Life by Paul Miller that walks through uh, the book of Ruth. It's just great, a uh, great book. And I really encourage you to grab it and, and read it and spend some time. But he said this, I love this. He said, imagine if a self-help book titled, was titled Seven Steps to Losing Your Life for Another Person. I just don't have that. Or Learn the Secret of Losing Power in Relationship." Uh, and he said, but that is the, es- that's the essence of hesed, that, that love, that stubborn love. Love always narrows and limits our lives. When we truly love, we do. We give up to love. It boxes us in, he says. Or the way that Christ says, or the, for the gospel, or I'm sorry, the apostle John, who's speaking and really giving commentary on the words of Christ. 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, but 1 John. By this we know love, that he laid down, Christ laid down his life for us, 
And we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. Or Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, of loving God and loving others. So we bear one another's burdens. We die to self. And even on this Mother's Day, this is a great day where we love, show love to our moms and, and to our uh, for husbands to our, our, our spouses. And we do that sometimes. We'll buy flowers or buy cards or, or figure out a special thing that we know that they kind of like and, and get that. And we can do that. Or even just not just Mother's Day, but husbands and wives. There's just different things we do to serve one another. Maybe a, a date night and different things. But even greater than that, a way that we can serve those we love is, is to die to self. Uh, would we, would Karen, would Kelly... I don't know why I said Carrie. Kelly and I. <laughs> only there's only only Carrie. Kelly. <laughs> See? Uh, yeah. Never mind. So I, I have to die to myself a lot today to make up for grace. When we went through premarital counseling, um, which we'll go through again in a little bit. Um, she no. So. Um, they said, they said this, they said, they said it in a little different way than I'm going to say it because I want the PG but, rating, but they said romance begins in the kitchen. And they meant by that is, this was to me to serve my wife <laughs> and begins by serving her by, by taking up that, that um, scrub brush and cleaning dishes and doing that serving, dying to self. And that I think of Christ, how he took up a towel and basin to serve and love, and die to self. And it's more than just showing a romantic love, but a service, dying to self type of love, with that putting down the remote, or putting down the phone, or putting down the screen, or putting down the, the controller. And that, like, it can go both ways, not just husbands to wife, but wives to husbands as well. And to die to self. As um, one of my mentors, Ralph Helm, who... Um, preached here, he just told me about this dying to self. Even before I go home, he even said, I encourage you to take a longer route home so you can just lay aside all those kind of things you're thinking through and be able to enter in and love and serve your family. And that's how we love. We die to self. And those who are suffering, to die to self, to get in to the messiness, to walk with them. And uh, for parents, loving, we can, we can buy all sorts of stuff for our kids, but really we should die to self by setting aside our time and our desires and in our things so that we can serve them and love them and care for them or for brothers and sisters in Christ, dying to self-humbling ourselves and often putting aside our own agendas to love and to serve. But how do we love like this? How do we love one another that way? Because probably by the time we sit down for lunch, or for me, um, I already failed, but, uh, but then we'll fail in loving the way we should love. So how did Ruth love as she loved? Was it rooted in her own strength, her own commitment, her own ambition? Was her love rooted mostly in who Naomi was, the character of Naomi? Was that the root of it? No, I don't think so. Her, her love is rooted in her faith in Yahweh. Her commitment and her steadfast, steadfast love is rooted in her love for God. Says God is a love, and he is a source of all grace. And we see that in these words of Ruth, as we continue on, uh, it's a Ruth, it's a, it's a uh, love rooted in, in God and a faith in God. Verse 16, 16, the second half of that says, Your people, uh, for, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, for your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. 
my, may the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So we see the strong commitment, the strong, loyal, stubborn, Hesed's love. The root of it really, I believe, is in in her faith in the one true God. She is bound, not just her life to Naomi, but she's bound her life to the Lord God. Her future in her life is bound up in her and her actions show the reality of that, that she is walking in that way. Again, she says, your people shall be my people now. Your God is now my God. She's using even covenantal language, the language that the Lord God used when he chose his people. So she's been listening to Naomi. She's been listening to these stories that, that Naomi has told her about the one true God, about Yahweh and his faithfulness to his people to rescue them and to call them and to make a covenant with them, to, to love them and be with them. She echoes the words of Exodus chapter 7, verse 6. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of Egypt. So here, Ruth, she's now, again, she's joining herself to the people of God, but also to all of the promises that God has given and to Yahweh himself. Yahweh is now her God. She is all in. She is all in and she's bound herself and she clings to Naomi, but she's clinging to the one true God. And we also see her identity has changed. She says, where you die, I will die. I'm going to be, I'm going to die in the place you die and I'm going to be buried there. So most likely, Naomi, she knows Naomi's going to die before her, but she's going to still remain there. She's going to remain where Ruth goes. She's going to be part of the people of Israel. I'm going to remain there. I'm going to die there. I'm going to be buried there. I have a changed identity. I'm a part of this people. Uh, Pastor David Strain, he said this, I think is good. The only explanation that can account for her determination is to make the journey at all is that her heart has been changed profoundly. She has been saved by grace through faith in the God of Israel, whose covenant name she invokes directly in her verse when she says, may the Lord, may Yahweh do to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So she even, there's even this solemn oath, may God do whatever he wills if I break this oath with you. And she really binds herself to Naomi. Now, there's something here that when I first read it through and studied and even wrote up my notes and things, I didn't see it. Uh, but it was helpful when I went back and I read that the chapter in Paul Miller's book on that, on this passage. He points out, and maybe maybe even you can see it if your translation, I know, I think the, the Christian Standard Bible has it broken up so you can see that this is poetry. She's, she's speaking poetry here, and there's Three stanzas with two parallel lines, so there's, there's a parallelism in this. And what's at the middle of this poem that she speaks in these verses 16 through 17? Uh, may, your God will be my God. So again, the heart, the root of her commitment, Ruth's commitment to Naomi, is something greater than Naomi, something greater than her relationship with Naomi, but that of a relationship with the one true God. 
And that's at the heart and the root. And the same is for us. Our love must be rooted in the the love of our God and his steadfast love that we see poured out on us through Jesus Christ. So it makes sense that the root of that is to love God. I think of Christ asking, what are the greatest commandments? First, to love God and then to love others. And God is the one who is is love. But there's a lot of things that can kind of creep in and become other gods in our life that really can skew our love for one another as well. Um, there's different gods in our lives that can pop up, that of uh, maybe other people, or maybe it's that of a political party, or status, or money, or desires, or possibly even, even ourselves. Often we'll, de- we'll defend ourselves at all costs, um, not being willing to humble ourselves and serve um, one another. We just have to be right and make sure everyone knows that we're right. So we can, and then love itself. Love itself can become its own God as well. Just desiring love so much. And, and that's one thing I think that Paul Miller in that book really outlines well. And I encourage you to read it. But he talks about, we kind of have a time where we have this Disney love, this picture of love that's just so false and not helpful. And he says this, the Disney dream shapes how we approach marriage. So the perfect wedding is the new norm. And that was written in two, 2014. I think it's even more so now. Uh, you have to have an Instagram perfect wedding. Then when we realize we're married, we've married someone selfish, uh, which is everyone, (laughs) we discard the dream and become cynical about the possibility of love. We set ourselves up for the failure by, we've set ourselves up for failure by overloading love with far more than it can bear. It becomes a God that we want, or even marriage or a spouse. Married Love, as a source of life, crashes on the rocks of human depravity. And that's true in the same. And he goes on to talk about our children as well. We can set them up as to fulfill much more than, than they were ever meant to fulfill in our life. And he says, love is not God. God is, God is love. And then verse 18. And when Naomi saw this, again, she's determined that she was determined to go with her. She says, no more. Okay, let's go. So then they continue. And finally, verses 19 through 22 trying to take these all in one chunk here. And we see, to to be patient, merciful with those who are walking through bitter times, 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth and the Moabite, uh, and the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So here they press on, and Ruth and Naomi, and they enter into Bethlehem, and most likely during that time, the towns were more villages. They were small villages during that day. And Bethlehem probably wasn't more than a few hundred people, less than a thousand people. And famine had come through the land, remember? So probably even fewer people than normal. So it's a small community. It's a small community. They know everybody's business, right? Maybe you've lived in one. I haven't uh, lived in a really small 
community, so we don't know that. Although in China, we lived in a, a really big community, but everyone seemed to know what we, what we did. <laughs> they knew our business so, um, because we stood out. But you enter into a community, and they know what's going on, so that you can't just sneak in. And most likely, there was just one gate into Bethlehem, so there was no, no way of just kind of, kind of getting through the cracks and entering in. When you go in... Everyone knew, and most likely, I would think Naomi was just dreading this moment. And some of you who have faced loss and different difficulties and going back to a place, you're like, I just want to be, hide. But that is not what happens. It's stirred. There's a stirring of excitement. Someone who's been gone for 10 plus years, they're back, and they want to know what's going on. And the, the city is stirred. And they see Naomi. But there seems to be a little bit of doubt, too. They're like, is this, is this Naomi? Uh, and it could be that she's had 10 difficult years and been away and all this death and sorrow. And she may have looked a little worse for the wear. And they're like, is this Naomi? And then how does Naomi respond? Remember, what does Naomi mean? It means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. So they come in and they're saying, look, it's pleasant. Welcome back, pleasant. And all Naomi can think and say is that these past few years, they have not been pleasant. My life is not pleasant. I am not pleasant. Do not call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter. I am bitter. Don't call me Mara anymore. Last time I passed through these gates, my life was full. I left with husband and my two kids, and we left, and now I return empty. Do not call me Naomi. So we see even in these words that there's so much loss and despair and so much cynicism in her whole circumstances and what has happened and what will happen that that's all she can see is tragedy. And Naomi forgets that even when they left, uh, they, she did leave with her husband and her boys, but they weren't exactly full They were going because they were fleeing because there wasn't food and they were starving. They were going to find fulfillment and food in Moab. And now also as she returns, she's not completely empty, right? She still has Ruth who has clung and given up her life really to be with her. So she's not completely empty, but Ruth doesn't see any of this. In the light of her grief grief and loss, all she sees is, is loss and emptiness, as Paul Miller states it's easy to get lost in our pain. I think that's true. It's easy to get lost in our pain. And we can wrestle and we can struggle with our faith. And it doesn't, we see too that she doesn't falsely just put on a, a, falk, a, fal, a false face, a mask of Christian spirituality and just say, oh, it's all great. <laughs> she doesn't do that. She doesn't. She acknowledges that it's been difficult. And she just can't see a way through. And may we be gracious, too, with those two type of people. And may we, in the right way, in the right timing, in love, point them again and again to the goodness of the gospel as we have opportunity. But be present. And as I was studying this passage, there are some commentators that are really harsh on, on Naomi, um, on her faith. And I think they're harsher than even we see the book of Ruth. It doesn't give such harsh commentary on Naomi during this time. And even harsher than I think God is, because how does God respond ultimately with Naomi? He's gracious. He provides abundance, we're going to see, to them and their family. 
So uh, as one of my friends, we were talking a little bit about this. It was chatting back and forth. And he said this, if anything, it shows that God is merciful and gracious, even to his wrestling, bitter, complaining people. So we could probably be a little bit more merciful ourselves. I think that's true. So Naomi sees all that has happened in her life, and she just sees bitterness at this point. Now, she doesn't deny God. She doesn't deny that God is sovereignly even over all that is happening, but she's really having trouble seeing the goodness of God in the midst of this moment. And there's times where that is the case for us and a case for others, and we can walk patiently with them and pray for them and as God enables us to be agents of that goodness to them, tethering them of the gospel. Sometimes we are the tethers for those who walk through these times. And I think, again, one last quote from Paul Miller. says, as a daughter of Yahweh, believing in the promises of God, she, she's, she hopes, but her life is hopeless. A gap between hope and reality is desert. And Naomi's lament is the prayer of the desert. I think that was a good picture. There's sometimes we have true hopes of what God will do, but reality looks way different, and we're kind of in the desert in the middle, wrestling and walking through, and in the brokenness of this world, it can be hard to walk through, but she does the right thing in lamenting. Um, we see throughout the Psalms these laments to God, and we have a God who speaks, who calls us to speak, and that's one of the ways he brings healing, is for us to, to not just speak prayers to him, but to one another even in speaking, so that we are able to, to wrestle through these with one another. Sometimes it requires us to speak. And now in, in her lament, though, it doesn't mean that her lament is a perfect reflection of who God is. Either is it. It's not quite correct. But she is wrestling with God in the moment here. And then, just as we think about this, um, we think about Naomi. We need to be those who do enter in with one another as we walk through brokenness with one another. We can be incarnational love, the love of Christ. And as the Lord gives us opportunity to speak of the gospel, again, tethering um, our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ and our family members to uh, the grace of the gospel and reminding reminding them that Jesus is alive even when we feel dead. And our hope and our faith might feel dead. And we can step in. And as brothers and sisters in Christ is in the church, walk through, rock with one another well in sorrow. And be reminded, if we see it at the last verse here, that there's harvest to come. It says, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I think this points to hope. There's hope here. There's harvest to come. There's provision to come for even this outsider, Ruth, a Moabite. Um, and we're, as we, we did last week, we looked to the end of the story, and we know that the birth of a child is coming, who will be the grandfather of King David, the great-great-great-great-grandfather of King Jesus. I'm going to end today just by reading a little part from a song by Andrew Peterson. Maybe you're familiar with with Andrew Peterson. He's a, a Christian artist. Uh, he's a, an author, and I love the way he writes and the way he writes his, his songs as well. And he writes this song called The Sower's Song. And he says, Oh God, 
I am furrowed like the field, torn open like the dirt. So this is a picture of a field getting ready for planting where the plow goes down and rips it open. He said, I've been furrowed like the field, torn open like the dirt, and I know that to be healed, that I must be broken first. I am aching for the yield that you will harvest from this hurt. Abide in me. Let these branches bear you fruit. Abide in me, Lord, as I abide in you. This picture of, of harvest coming in the midst of our sorrow and the severe, the severe mercies that he brings. Dear Father God, we thank you for the way that you walk with us through suffering, that you can even use it to refine and to bring about a harvest. But sometimes that waiting is so long. Lord, I pray even just for your mercies and your grace upon those who are here and those who might hear this later or online right now, that your mercies would be upon them as they might walk through currently through sorrow and suffering. Help them in the cloud to see your hope and your grace. And Lord, help us to be those who walk better with those who are walking through suffering. Help us to be those who tether those who are suffering to your truth and to your grace and to your mercy and to your hope, I pray. Lord, help us to to grow in understanding your steadfast love and be better agents of that, I pray. And I pray even if there are some that have yet to even experience that mercy and that grace for the first time, that even this morning that they would trust, that turn from their sins, as think of Ruth and Naomi turning back to to Judah, they turn to you and place their faith in you by your grace that that would happen even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are...